out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Um, well, I used to, well, I mean, it all started when I met Ken, actually, uh, sometime in 1980, probably. And uh, Ken was uh, drumming with the Laughing Apple, uh, Alan McGee's band. And uh, Ken and I got to know each other. And uh, I went down to London and lived a little bit of life and hung out with Alan McGee for a while. Um, and then... Um, Basically, Alan McGee didn't want to put the June Brides out on record in 1984. Um, and I'd known Phil Wilson having failed a audition for the bass playing role. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Well, there I you didn't go. know that. He failed <laughs> to get into the June Brides. I failed to get into the June Brides. So, uh, but that was probably about 82, 83, 83 probably. But anyway, Alan didn't like or didn't want to spend uh, his sort of limited funds at that point on the June Brides. So I, together with uh, my friend, uh, Paul Sutton, uh, we cobbled together some recording time money and uh, put them in the recording studio. And that, that was really all it was to start with, um, to get the June Brides uh, first, first record out. Yes, because just going back, because having done this show for many years now, and um, yes, everyone, there's, there's three bands that people mention in the indie world of the 80s, the C86 world. There's the Smiths, the Go-Betweens, and the June Brides as being incredibly important. Actually, there's a fourth, but they're, that's the Orange Juice. So the June Brides, I can't, it's hard to believe that no one wanted to sign them. Yeah, I think Alan was being um, Alan and being quite perverse. Um, Alan could be rather perverse. Um, for... I, I read that he thought they were too obvious. <laughs> they, 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 well, they, yeah, they, yeah. They were almost like there was so much of a creation type band that he didn't want them. And it was like you're saying, he's being perverse about it, going, I'm not going to sign them. So. Yeah. And it became a thing. And I think actually uh, Phil Wilson was probably a little put out. I can't really remember it but I mean I know I would be put out I mean Alan and Phil knew each other and I mean you know because we were gigging and I'm sure the June Bride played at the living room various times or the communication club 
And um, yeah, so anyway, that's how it started. And 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 I suppose that also was the start of my um, departure from my involvement with with Alan and Creation Records, as it as it was uh, at the time. Because um, I you'll you'll know probably David that uh, I. I, I, for instance, I played on the first ever Creation Records single by the legend. Uh, I played bass very badly on the B side. Right. You could, you could, like um, Happy Mondays, uh, the egg uh, track, you can hear a bum note in some of the first few bars of the uh, record. Yes, perhaps, perhaps that's why Phil Wilson didn't want you in the June Brides. Absolutely, yeah, no, for sure. That was so. That was just like God. So then you thought, oh, look, look, because I've done an interview with, um, I suppose, Claire and Matt from Sarah Records, and they didn't really know what they were doing, but they had lots of passion, and like a lot of people who started indie labels. So did you know, you know, when you did Pink, did you, th- and um, and you thought, look, this is a great name. What names did you reject, actually? What names did I reject? Well, to to come up with Pink, you know, I always think of. <laughs> Yeah, I probably, I can't really remember, to be honest, and I was um, struggling a bit. Um, I'm not the most creative of people, hence not being in bands and um, not writing music and the like. So I do remember uh, sat on a bus um, flicking through a freebie London magazine at the time called Girl, um, and it had the same design block text thing going on that the pink label had ultimately. And I do remember that. I don't really remember. I do remember, however, that Luke Hayes of Chromatone, Chromatone, what was it? Chromatone Design. He was the guy, Luke Skywalker, we called him. And he was the guy that did all the creation records um, design uh, sleeves. And uh, he did, our sleeves as well and I do remember uh well nobody's emphatically said but I do think that the the pinky two and pinky three which had a postcard record style single side cutouts and there was a uh a a pink triangle that sort of went around the, the 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 single uh, sleeve, and I think that that was uh, Luke Hayes and Alan McGee's joke on me because, being very naive, I didn't really understand what what a pink uh, triangle meant. So, I've never seen it in print, or indeed ever seen anybody talk about it. But uh, there may be some thoughts out there that you know the pink label was in fact a sort of um, gay label, which nothing wrong with that, obviously, but. Uh, I was a bit embarrassed because I, I didn't really understand at the time. <laughs> I seem to remember Bronsky Beat had something about, I don't know, I'll have to go and Google this. Not not the time to go and Google anything. But, you know, I think they had some sort of pink triangle as well. It's probably all slightly connected. So, look, you you were in partnership on Pink with Paul. So yeah. did, did you both have an, a mission and an idea of where you were going? Uh, not Not really, not to begin with. I think that we were, you've got to remember, David, we were... Very young, uh, I think probably twenty one. Barely twenties, barely, barely, barely twenty. Out of your teens, barely, barely out of my teens. So, and um, I was at the time working in. Uh, I was uh, meat packing, and then late, latterly, I was working for London Underground, and um, and so yes, quite quickly, I think it became like this idea. Oh wow, this actually could mean something and become something. 
because as I say, Alan's passion and drive, it was, it was quite inspirational. I think that very few people that met Alan um, could ignore that sense of purpose. And, I, I, and that rubbed off on me to, 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 you know, to a certain extent. So, yes, I probably was. I was very driven. I had a full-time job and it was very time-consuming and evenings and meetings and on the phone and everything. So, yeah, I must have been quite uh, yeah, passionate about what I was doing. Yes, because I did interview Steve Mack from That Petrol Emotion who brought out the single Keen. And uh, I think it's still sort of, um, yes... I don't know. It wasn't a great experience, was it? That that particular experience in the petrol, that petrol, because I think he had to redo the vocals, but there was something to do with the timing of the drums or something like that, which um, meant it was a bit of a tricky experience. Uh, vague memories of the, the yeah. <laughs> well, given that the petrols, I mean, they didn't have a singer uh, until um, a couple of weeks before the recording studios. I mean. Um, yeah, the petrols, that putting that record out actually was also another reason why uh, Alan and me, Alan McGee and I, we sort of fell out a bit. Um, the uh, petrols, I can't remember, I think it might have been a farm gig at a London university, uh, some London polytechnic gig. And uh, John O'Neill, John or uh, Damien O'Neill came up to Paul, I think it was, and said, uh, yeah, can you... Um, can you put our single out? Because I think Alan had some cash flow problems at the time. And um, so, yeah, we, we we did that. I was very happy to do it. Obviously, um, it uh, raised the profile of the label somewhat at the point, at that point. I don't remember the... I have some vague memories, as you say, of the recording of the record, but uh, I stand by that it's the, the best record they probably ever did. But there are probably other people that disagree with that, I'm sure. Yeah, well, that's fair enough. So when the the first band you did, though, was, was Jamie Wednesday, Vote for Love. So at that time... Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't the first band. The June Brides were the first. Oh, God, sorry. Oh, yes. Yeah. Sorry, I can see. In the Rain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The June Brides were the first, and then there was this other band called The, the Ringing, and then it was, uh, yeah, more June Brides, and then Jamie Wednesday came a little later. Yes. So when you look back at the, the roster that you had, you must be really pleased because you also had the Wolfhands, McCarthy. You know, they, they were sort of serious indie classics, really, at the time. Because cause I put indie down between the years of 83 to 87, which is basically the years of the Smiths, because around 87, 88, you know, the scene had changed quite a lot and the rave culture started kicking and a lot of those bands finished um, quite quite in a messy a very messy way. So, so did you feel like you were part of a scene at that stage? Because, because we've all read, or at least flicked through it, the Neil Taylor book, haven't we? C eighty six and all that, the creation of indie in difficult times. So, um, yes, when you when you at the time, did it feel like you were part of a scene? Um, yes and no. Uh, certainly earlier on, particularly when I was hanging out with Alan McGee and and you know Ken and everything. Um, it felt, yeah, that there was a growing theme. The the living room and the communication club, um, they were hubs of a certain type. I was amazed at how easy and connected we were to the music journalists at the time. 
so that 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 was a revelation. It, it, it sort of that was very interesting. And yes, I mean, certainly it was a scene of a kind. I mean, what I look back on, however, is um, how relatively, um, can't think of the word, uh, you know, if I was going to talk to my sons and said, right, you know, oh yeah, you need to get into rock and roll. It's, uh, it's everything that people say, say it is, you know. Uh, except for us, it certainly wasn't. It was very um, monk-like, and um, there wasn't any of the, you know, or maybe it was just me that I was doing things, doing things the wrong thing. But it was lots of music, but not of the a lot of the other things. And I regret that somehow, that I didn't have more of a wild time. But uh, which I, of course, know know that that then came later for Alan and and, and all the others uh, once cre uh, creation really took off. Yes, well, absolutely. But then at the same time, you, you had all those other labels that were around like 53rd and 3rd and Vindaloo Records and In Tape as well. Because, you know, basically I'm, I was one of those kids who were a bit obsessed with John Peel and the NME on a Wednesday and, you know, recorded the John Peel show and listened to it religiously and tried to find those kind of tricky seven-inch singles from bands with quirky names. So So all those kind of indie nights that you'd have in you know every city up and down the country were quite important and what I didn't realize at the time were the gatekeepers you know John Peel was obviously this huge gatekeeper but the NME melody maker uh, record mirror were also you know like a play in them or you know a mention or a review and you'd get sort of a huge kind of circulation really wouldn't you so that was also quite a critical part of the the journey of all these record labels absolutely I mean that you know I guess at the time, Paul and I, you know, we were marketing and didn't really know that we were doing that. But the relationship that we built up with those journalists was absolutely vital. Uh, so, yeah, I think you asked me a brief question. I think you were trending towards asking me about the music. And uh, I mean, the band that I li listen to now and think, wow, well, they were they were really a class act. And that that is McCarthy. Uh, I think that of all the bands uh, that I put out, I, I, I think that McCarthy have stood up the best, but, you know, just the beginning. Yes, well, absolutely. Well, I, I don't, yeah. I mean, I have to say, the, the first time I heard the June Brides, it was love. And actually, the Wolfhounds, I always remember Lazy Day on the Lazy A, which was another classic as well. So um, it was good. And Ken. Yes. You're there. So, so what was your what was your musical... Um, background. I mean, when when did you start thinking I want to play music and and be in a band? I think I suppose I'd always wanted to be a drummer. So I got my first drum kit when I was about twelve or thirteen. Then I played in local covers bands, and I think I played in a band with Dick Green uh, from Big Bang Pair, who was one of my oldest friends and still is from school. And we knocked about together, and I decided I was going to be a pop star. So I moved to London, working for Brent Council. And then I answered an advert and ended up in a band with uh, Ronnie Barker's son, Larry, who was a guitarist in a band called The Results. And that sort of came to nothing. It was an, an R&B band. It was, uh, it was an OK band, a bit like Nine Below Zero, but that didn't come of anything. And so I answered an advert in The Melody Maker, which said uh, drummer wanted for band into Teardrop Explodes, Echo and the Bunnymen and The Nips. So I answered that and it was Alan McGee and he said, what sort of music in, are you into? And I said, Teardrop Explodes, The Bunnymen and The Nibs. And we arranged to meet and I 
clearly remember. I mean, I don't know how long this is ago. This is about 40 years, isn't it? 1980. 1980, meeting him at uh, Clapham Common Tube Station on a hot summer's day in June. And um, he was just stood there with his bright ginger hair, red hair, drainpipe trousers and a tank top. And he looked, he just looked weird. And Simon and I were were both sort of met in Boston and we were the sort of the weird kids from Boston dressed in our dead men's clothes, secondhand clothes. And and he was another one of these types, but even more, I think something uh, Simon said earlier, he had this such sense of purpose that was incredible. Never met anybody like him at all. And he had downstairs in the tube station waiting for us as well was was Andrew Innes in his parker on a hot summer's day. And we went down the road to St. Alphonsus Road in Clapham, where we climbed through the window of the, of the squat that I ended up living in and started to rehearse. And I'd never heard anything like it. Andrew still is, Andrew Innes, one of the most amazing musicians you'll ever meet. Um, but that's how we met. I met him through a phone call and it started started this journey that involved at the end of the day hundreds thousands of people so it was an incredible time but such a long time ago yes well it's probably is it 40 years the 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 laughing the laughing apple sort of uh, became part of um, rock and roll history indeed i remember going up we got the bus we couldn't afford to um record in london so we took the overnight bus to glasgow to record the first single which was participate I think, yeah, with Wouldn't You on the B-side. And I don't think it did anything at all, actually. Well, that was the second Laughing Apple Oh, it's single. the second Laughing Apple single. Yeah, that, because the first one was the Ha Ha He He EP, which I didn't... The film, which I didn't <laughs> play on, uh, apparently. But I'm in the creation film that's coming up, but that's maybe another story for another time. But anyway, what was I saying? Where were we, David? Yes, well, you were doing the Laughing Apple, which was quite a short-lived affair until sort of for a few few years during that early period because because a lot of people that I've interviewed during that part time one of the things that helped was being unemployed because you would get you know you could get sort of about 30 pound and housing benefit and your council tax paid and and sort of at least a few months before people dragged you in and you had to be interviewed for a job so um yeah so did were you able to sort of uh, survive on unemployment or the job seekers allowance or enterprise allowance yeah, at that time, I wasn't unemployed. I think I was working for Brent Council, but I eventually had to leave Brent Council because I didn't turn up very much. Uh, so <laughs> I had an appalling sick record, and I think they realised that I was doing other things at the time. So I left that job, and I say I ended up living in a squat with Andrew Innes in, in Clapham. Uh, so the unemployment thing didn't affect me as such, but, uh, yeah, I did... I did eventually uh, become unemployed and uh, yes, that wasn't part of my plan anyway. The plan was to move to London and be a pop star. Yes. Well, what's amazing, because quite a few people, young, you know, this is, you know, like obviously in the early 80s, we didn't even have phones in those days, did we? Particularly yeah. and, and sort of communication was tricky. A lot of people did move to London on this kind of dream and not an x-factor dream but an actual you know i want to be in a band which i i still think it sounds incredibly brave i mean not as brave as going into the first world war but at the same time it was a bit of a um it was quite courageous and quite adventurous 
it was really naive as well because I don't think we expected anything to happen and and it just sort of happened that I met met sort of people through Alan McGee as well because he was he was the great catalyst in all all of this without him I don't think if anything would have happened at all of any of any sort of great purpose or adventure he was you can't stress how much that he was uh, I mean he's 60 this year same as me and I was thinking the other day uh, that that although musically I didn't uh, I didn't make anything of myself musically, but the people that I met and the things and the attitude his attitude was just I can do what I want mm. and which is coming from a small town like Boston there weren't people who thought I will do what I want, and again like him and people like Bobby I remember the first time I met Bobby um, Bobby um, Gillespie was when we had to, to record the single. And I just remember Bobby sat there in the corner of his flat, strumming a badly, very badly guitar and trying to sing the blues. But I remember saying to somebody about a month after that, and they said, oh, you met Bobby Gillespie. And um, we didn't particularly get on, and we still don't. But um, I just said to somebody, nobody will ever tell that guy what to do. And there was this sense of, and I think, to be honest, Simon might agree, that's part of being Scottish, I think. <laughs> no, seriously, there yeah. is that Scots working class belligerence, isn't and, there? and they've got to come down south to express it because if they did it at home, they'd probably get thumped or something. Yes, I think they were from Glasgow, which is probably quite a tough place. So then, how did the 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 life in Apple finish? Did it was it just inevitable that it wasn't going to last that long? Do you know, I don't even remember how it finished. Alan um, just shut it down after the, um, what was that dreadful single, the, the third single? Yeah, the, the third single Precious was Feeling. Precious Feeling, yeah. That, yeah. that winter journey we that had. winter journey, yeah. The, we, we made a third single on, was it the Autonomy label? I don't yeah, and it just didn't do anything. The, I think the single, the single sounds for the Laughing Apple got fewer and fewer all the time, mm. and he just decided to stop it. And then he decided to concentrate on starting creation, didn't he? Well, uh, there was the um, well doing various things, but it was clubs and uh, various oh, things. It, yeah. And uh, for a little while, actually, uh, Alan had this um, uh, <laughs> this idea. There was a genre of music called Oi at, at the time, and um, very thrashy, punky uh, music, skinheady sort of music. And Alan did develop a, a, a label. He put about three, two or three, four records out, th- thinking he was going to make lots of money there. Did he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, Alan and I had a, we 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 were doing that together, sort of, and we were going to have a contract. There was a band called Subculture. I remember that he put the single out, and the single for that label, I can't remember the label's name was uh, the singles were exactly the same as what the creation record singles, Fold Over Sleeve, Poly, uh, Polyurethane Bag and so forth. And then and then he decided to do, yeah, I think he met Jerry Thackeray, um, uh, the legend, uh, Everett True. And I think that that probably prompted something about creation. Oh, well. did but I might, I might have yeah, that yeah. wrong. I, I yeah. haven't read the book. So, yeah. yeah. Yes. So then when you got into Biff Bang Pow, did that um, come together? Because, again, that, that's the kind of uh, 83, a great year for indie bands. So did you feel that uh, that band came together quite easily? I think it did, actually, because there was myself. And by this time, Dick Green, one of my older school friends, he'd moved down to London as well. And he was working as an insurance clerk or something like that. 
And I introduced Dick and Alan to each other and they got on well. And Dick, Dick was a guitarist and wanted to be a guitarist. Uh, and we just sort of formed Biff Bang Pow from then. Uh, so who was on bass? Who was on bass? Was it Dave? Joe Foster? No. Dave, I don't think Joe ever played. Did Joe ever play bass? Dave, Dave Evans. Dave Evans, yeah. I mean, there was this, there was this amazing Boston exodus from, um, well, from Boston, obviously, <laughs> down to London, which I like to think I started. And uh, everybody sort of moved down from Boston to join this, this sort of, I won't say commune, but to be part of this scene. And Dave Evans, again, was another school friend. And I can't remember how he ended up on bass. I can't remember how he ended up on bass, to be honest, but it was myself... Dave Evans and Alan and Dick. And I think there was another guy called Dennis Pooley before that, wasn't Dennis, Dennis. He was in the band when they had that band accident. Yeah, yeah. So so again, it just started. We used to rehearse, used to go around to Alan McGee's house in Tottenham and strum out some songs. Alan used to write all the songs. We just used to go into the studio or play live and make a ferocious noise, basically. Yes. yes. And it was a kind of a mix, wasn't it? The mod, psychedelic, bit new way, bit of everything, really. So was there any particular blueprint? You know, was there another band that you were thinking, let's try and sound a bit like them, just make life easy? I think we went through stages of being influenced by lots of bands. I mean, obviously the, the, obviously the band name comes from the creation and it started off with that 60s garagey sound, but then we went through a bit of a... Oh, was that Laughing Apple I'm thinking of? Um... No, I mean, to be honest, David, as far as I was concerned, I just used to play the drums to what Alan used to write. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's as simple as that. Alan would write a song, we'd go in the studio, I would thrash away at it, uh, and it would take a, a weekend to, to, uh, to make an album, and it was as simple as that. I never had uh, any musical input at all, and that's not a complaint, but uh, it was just my job as a drummer to, to hit the drums as hard as fast as possible. And growing up during the sort of, I'm sort of, I was born in the mid-60s, so I'm in my mid-50s now, but I just remember, and I don't know if you can, when Cozy Powell started releasing solo albums, were you influenced by people like Cozy Powell? Powell, Dance with the Devil, <laughs> Dance with the Devil. Which was, because drummers at that stage could do that thing with the, you know, drumstick flicking around the finger, and that looked really important. Did you manage to sort of master that moment? Oh, now, now, I still can't. That's all I'm saying. I, I've tried to do it, but I'm not a drummer anymore, David. I, I, I'm not a drummer. No. <laughs> right. So the co thank you for mentioning Cozy Powell. Yes. Yes. Well, I, I just remember that was quite, you know, like it was quite unusual at the time that this single and this, you know, song was being played on top of the pops. And um, yes, he, he was the man, but without any lyrics or any anything at all. So um, drummers were quite big in those days, weren't they? We were, we were. I, I mean, I think I'd say I do remember Dance with the Devil very well. I was my favourite drummer at the time. Uh, I must admit, this is gonna, this is gonna sound really cool. Was a guy called Carl Palmer from Emerson Lake and Palmer, mm. because obviously before, before punk rock, you were into all sorts of things. I mean, you were into Bowie or Slade or the Stones, or and I was particularly into prog rock. And I still do like Genesis. And yes, I say with no sense of shame whatsoever. Yes, well, no, well, it's interesting because my brother's seven years older than me, and and he had a record collection, and this was in the seventies, and he was that one who went for the Genesis, yes, Wishbone Ash, Barkley, James Harvest, even the solo work of people yep. like Rick Wakeman, Steve Howe. So. 
I, yeah. I, I sort of, yeah. at the age of 12 to 14, <laughs> used to sort of sneak into his room and play these records when he wasn't about because he'd banned me from them and uh, became quite obsessed with that world of, and even Emerson, Lake and Palmer, who apparently sort of created a, a drum kit so heavy the stage had to be reinforced to hold it all up because it did he make it out of some really like heavy, heavy steel or something? He probably did reinforce steel and Greg Lake's carpet, the Persian carpet that he yes. has door as well yeah so i was into all that yeah absolutely uh, and still am and still into all sorts of music you know there's there's good music and there's bad music and that's about it really but as far as drummers go no i didn't have any particular influences no not from what i was playing and when i was playing because the music was just alan wrote a thing about alan he wrote such complete songs that, that, that you just played along to them you know those verse chorus verse chorus which is what i still like so there was no sort of great musical oh we're going to do this we're going to do that it was just good fun being in a band and playing live and touring because because i don't know if you've seen it there was the wedding present film that came out a couple of years ago or last year on george best and there was a huge thing about drummers and the click track and the problem with the producer but it all came back to the drummer and they had to get rid of the drummer then they got rid of the producer it was all very murky so how did um, did you sort of navigate that world of click tracks and producers Oh, this is embarrassing. So um, I, I do once every two or three years, I listen to some Biff Bang Pow and think, yeah, this is okay. But the drumming is, 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 is average, to say the least. And now I play guitar now, and I have been doing for quite a few years, and I made my first single uh, for, for my own band, Lord Fairbank, that's with a Y, by the way. Uh, you'll hear more of them, seriously. Um, psych pop outfit. Who have We've had a lot of help from uh, Andrew Innes as well. Uh, Andrew has been helping me out this. But anyway, I went into the studio last year for the first time and I used a click track, and my timing is atrocious. It really is. Honestly, I'm not kidding. I, we put the click track on, and within three bars, I was ahead of it. It's actually quite embarrassing to admit, but as a drummer, I had terrible, because everything that we played was so loud and so fast that it just got louder and faster. Yes, this is true. Not a hope, no. No. So look, with with most bands, they have, you know, they have a sort of normally a five-year narrative where they, they get together, you know, spend a couple of years taking drugs and drinking, make a single, John Peel play it, got the John Peel session, that first album, things were going well, second album, a bit tricky. If anybody ever tours America, disaster. Um, so how what was the sort of the, the, the narrative and the life of Biff Bang Bow? Well, that was sort of uh, quite strange, really, because I, I have no idea. You could actually tell me how long we went on for. It was just because um, everybody else is busy. Alan was obviously busy with uh, with the label and Dick was doing the label as well. I was actually playing in bands, but I was also working as well. I've always, whilst we've done that, I've never been a, a full time musician. I think by the time uh, Biff Bang Pow finished, I was working as a photographic researcher in what is the old Fleet Street, uh, freelancing for daily newspapers. So I've never sort of devoted myself 100% uh, to playing music. So we just went along and when Alan had a spare month, we'd go into the studio and make a, an album for the weekend or or we'd go on tour with, with Felt or, or Primal Scream or whatever. So... The narrative for Biff Bang Pow was very loose. It was what when everybody could get together, and when Alan wasn't promoting uh, his 
tracks as well. So there was no sort of, here's the band, this is our shelf life. I've no idea how many albums we made. Did we make five four? or six? Four? Five? Four or five? I think, we were... you, I think you made six. The last one, me, which was came out in 91, was your sixth album. Oh, was it? That's the one with the marble on the front, is it? That was mainly acoustic, wasn't it? I don't think I played on much of that. I may have played a castanet once. I think there was a castanet on there that I played but couldn't even keep time on. So we we sampled that. <laughs> we sampled that and then used it again. But, so that was the last one. And I think after that there's been three or four compilation albums, I I I guess anyway, but I've I've no sort of comprehensive history of when we started and when we finished, to be honest, David. No. Bizarrely, you've got as many compilation albums as studio albums. It was I always remember the Commodores was the same, actually. I always remember when I was younger, thinking, God, they've got more best ofs than they actually have, you know, records. But um I don't know. They used to, you know, live albums and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, so that was good. So so Simon, coming back to the pink label. Yes. So what was the narrative of the Pink Label and how was that progressing? Well, um... Because 86 is definitely the moment the Pink Label has arrived, isn't it? That was your glory. Well, I would go back, actually. I think that the June Bride album was the uh, zenith of the album. I mean, I know that sounds silly because I think it was Pinky Five, but uh, that album um, was sort of indie album you know, number one for, uh, you know, a week or two. And then uh, the Smiths or New Order knocked it off. And and I mean, you know, that, for somebody that wasn't really, you know, sort of seriously engaged with this as a career, uh, that was, that was, that was my best moment. I thought front page of the enemy, number one indie album, you know, wow, you know, that, I I mean, I'm not taking away anything from the band. It's all the band really, but, I had uh, a small part to play in helping them um, do that. I mean, I think it was uh, really good. We then um, went on with the McCarthy and the Wolfhounds, and um, and those records, I think, as I say, they were the best part of uh, the Pink Label. Um, like Ken, I always was working throughout this whole period, and uh, I think probably end of 86, I... I, I you know, I was so busy, and Paul was even busier, and I think he had more time than I did uh, for various reasons. He may well have been unemployed. I know that he left his job. He used to work in the tourism industry, ABTA or something like that. And um, so he was probably working a lot harder than I was uh, uh, organising you know, stuff that needed to happen. How did and you, I, think, I, I was just going to say, how did you and Paul meet and decide to become not, uh, an, not an item, but a sort of a, a business? Uh, Paul and I, it's all again, I'm afraid, it all goes back to Boston, Lincolnshire. Uh, Paul and I met at uh, Boston College of Further Education uh, when we were 16, 17, it would have been, 17, 18. And we were acquaintances and we actually, uh, yeah, we, well, we didn't share her at the same time, but we we had the same girlfriend uh, at different times and there was some rivalry there. But uh, anyway, but we met up in in London and, uh, you know, we always got on and, um, and shared uh, similar interesting music. So we worked together uh, for a few years, three, well, I suppose it was 84, 5, 6, 7, yeah, three years. 
and um, and you know very pleased to have done it. Um, and he, but towards the end, I I had sort of, in a way, I suppose I just I, I'd lost faith in the whole thing really. I, I started to think more seriously about my future, and was wondering about whether the music industry was the was the right thing for me. And um, probably I, I was good that I chose not to continue or rather the label i mean eventually we ran out of money and um i had some uh basic yeah there was a vat bill i mean i think most businesses you know you get three or four years grace and then you have to start paying vat and that essentially killed the record label off i i wasn't prepared to finance that further because there was it didn't make any money really the label i remember yeah uh, didn't it didn't make any money and I wasn't really prepared to carry on. We'd had, uh, Paul and I had had a number of what I now see as interviews with the uh, major record label. I think we spoke with London and Chrysalis and Ireland or if Chrysalis and Ireland are the same thing maybe. And, um, you know, they, they didn't think uh, too much to us clearly. And uh, we didn't end up with a licensing deal and in the end, I thought, well, no, I don't want to extend my finances further. And I and I was I, I was fed up with it. Um, I have to say, I wasn't that into it. I think fans thought very much to me. I didn't really make up. I didn't make any great personal relationships with the with the bands. Paul got on very much better with uh, the Wolfhounds and McCarthy, and uh, Paul went on to do September records or September and put out some uh, you know some really good records as well um so yeah I it, it was um yeah 85 86 was the it was a great it was a great time you know but uh, you know I, I wasn't um prepared to sort of spend three or four or five years into my early 30s grinding it out with the with the hope that you know I'd end up making a salary's worth of income because you know there were no incomes to be had from any of it really yes. at, the, at the level we were at I know it's tricky I know do does I mean on that that did you own because I'm I have to confess the world of publishing is still a bit of a mystery in how it all works do you you know is your material easily available now you know who owns the actual music yeah no I um I think that you know for a number of years in the early 90s I think nobody was really that interested in any of it anyway but I mean I think then um I, I don't exactly remember that. I think perhaps one of the bands um, had sort of wanted to put out a compilation. It may have been the June Bride. They wanted to put out a compilation on Castle Communications or Demon or whatever. And um, I just simply gave the June Brides all the tapes and all the... And I, I just said, look, here, here, have it. It's nothing to do with me. It's your music. Nothing to do with me. Um, and of course... The publishing rights are a different thing anyway. It's the songwriters that get that. I, I, it's mechanical royalties that record labels have, and it's whether they have the legal right to produce artefacts from the music. And I did have that, but you know, I, I wasn't going to hold anybody to that. And after I think the June Brides, um, I gave the June Brides tapes back. I think I then sought out some of the other bands and said, look, you know, I don't really want to keep this. This is 
yours really to to do what you will do with however you want to do and um I, th I think then they all sort of put out cds and you know compilation albums and the like so no i i don't have any rights to any of that i've given all that away sad to say i'm afraid i'm i think the bands have probably given it all away to the likes of cast communications and demon records but that's neither here nor there yes um, well I, th I think slowly everybody has um cherry red records seems to have been good at sort of putting together compilations and tracking down these things but yeah it's kind of an it's just one of those worlds that is very to a fan you just never kind of un quite understand how or why you know how it kind of all the mechanics of these things work so when you I mean were you at the time of sort of putting that the records out were you sort of kind of surfing the zeitgeist on sort of producers and sort of studios and and sort of knowing what was where, where things were and how it was all working um, that that retrospectively actually was is, was one of the more interesting things the sort of the sort of production mechanics of producing records. I mean, particularly now actually, as vinyl has sort of come back into favour. I mean, I was just the other night actually I was having a conversation, boring some friends about um, how records are cut. You know, and there used to be this thing called the cutting rooms in Soho somewhere where you used to go down and have records cut on this huge lathe like machine and and the people that did that I think there's only three or four people in the country that did it people like Porky Prime Cut and like I say the cutting rooms and and it's um yeah and scribing runoffs into the runoffs of the records and, and all of that is uh I have great fond memories of all of that the mechanics of it um yeah it was very it was an interesting aspect of it yes quite mysterious and when and when you know the c86 cassette came out i think it's slightly yeah the june brides have famously um decided they didn't want to be on it but they they were on this sort of compilation that came out 20 odd years later the triple cd box set and um, do you i mean you obviously so you know neil taylor brought out the book um you must feel chuffed that you were you you played such a part in in the sort of indie world of the eighties. Well, the main reason for that was um, that Neil sought me out and uh, he he interviewed. There is, there is actually a chapter all about Pink, and um, but that's clearly Neil Taylor's decision. He obviously felt that Pink deserved to have a chapter, and uh, that chapter is mostly based around um, that interview I, I had with him. So um, chuffed. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think Ken and I, you know, we 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 we've been good friends since that seventy nine eighty. Yeah, and we always sort of what do we say? We we've got a, this uh, a footnote in the history of rock small music, footnote. a small footnote. And, yeah. and to that extent, yes, I feel very chuffed. Yes, yes. But never, there was never ever ever any sense that what we were doing was anything other than what you would do if you could play an instrument or or were interested in music that was the thing i mean loving music and so why wouldn't you want to make a record why wouldn't you actually want to go in the studio and make a record even if it only sells 10 copies and i think we were sort of in that position where weren't really aware of, or, or the, the self the consciousness about it only comes 20 or 30 years later because at the time it was just uh, just a bunch of hopeless guys down in london uh, trying to trying to have a good time and make a record because David Bowie made records mm. and he was cool and that that was it really. and, and also 
and also, I mean, you've got to bear in mind, David, that um, I, I, I lived with Dick Green uh, for some of this period, um, and uh, and through a friend of his, he he met with John and Damien O'Neill, and they came to our local pub in the Seven Sisters, and this was 1983, four, four, five, or something, and it's it was three years after the undertones had split up. And like, there we are, you know, like sat in a pub with, mm. you know, guys, proper pop stars. And we're thinking, oh my God. So there were lots of really fun moments like that, that, that where we were really young and it was very exciting in the sense that we felt connected to things that only three or four years before had been like really important and real so that, that that distinction between being the fan and the producer of this but ken's right my attitude and as i said as ken said his attitude was that we didn't really think that it was gonna then become as it did with alan and um the mary well actually it was more oasis but the mary chain yeah, 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 yeah. but then oasis it didn't really happen until oasis i mean the mary chain was a a big deal. I think it, the Mary Chain was the first pivotal moment yeah. where we thought, and I remember sat around around Alan's Alan's flat, and he went, "They're going to be bigger than Joy Division," and I went, Pff, "Yeah," and sort of you may disagree or, or otherwise, but in in there terms, thereabouts, yes, yeah, it, it sort of um, in the zeitgeist terms, and we both thought, and, and I still thought, "Oh no, no, I can't be involved with anybody who's bigger <laughs> than Joy Division." not me, not from Boston. Mm. So there is that retrospective thing about it. You still think, yeah, we didn't really. I mean, uh, the main thing is, David, I think throughout all our tales, we didn't really know what we were doing. Mm. Yes. Uh, We really didn't. And it was still McGee stressing that was was the the, the huge force behind all of this. And without him, it wouldn't have happened. But Mm. but, but there you go. Um, Yeah. Because one thing, because I did an interview with two of the members of a band called The Hangman's Beautiful Daughters. And um, yes, they lived it. I mean, the squat scene in London also seemed to be really important because there was a lot of bands also from Australia and New Zealand who realised they had to sort of come over to the UK or America. But if they came to London, there was, you know, a lot of squats and cheap housing. So that also kind of helped as well as every city and town had a little indie night, didn't they, on a Monday or Tuesday, probably. And that that kind of helped create a sort of an organic network you know you could get a John Peel play then someone would phone up and say do you want to come and play in Norwich or do you want to come and play in Leeds and people would get in their little transit and go up the country and play in front of 100 or 200 people who they didn't know which I think was quite an important part because you know you've got to eventually play in front of an audience you don't know really. That's it. I mean, there was a, a just you having said that, though, and when you said play in front of a hundred or two hundred people, yeah, that's very optimistic actually. So we we travel around the country. We didn't do many tours as Biff Bang Pow. I mean, we toured, we toured, we play, played actually more tours uh, in in Germany and Spain and France and places like that. There seemed to be more of an appetite for that sort of music or our sort of music abroad than there was in England. I mean, we did a couple of tours. We did one with julian cope and i can't even remember we did a couple of tours just three or four dates in scotland but as far as the tours are concerned they were mainly in europe which was which was more in a live sense more enthusiastic than people were in britain to be honest did you find that simon yes um we went on a tour with mccarthy and the wolfhounds um in uh, sort of benelux france and uh, yeah that was 
very, very exciting, much more. I mean, we played the Milkweg, which is the, the Milky Way in Amsterdam, and that was uh, that was really, really exciting. Yes, um, I know. Long- well, it's interesting because there are a few bands who are still sort of doing it from that period, and yeah. um, you know, playing Europe is is you know for them critical for their kind of finances for the rest of the year if they want to keep the band going in any shape or form. So it, it's obviously important. But I did notice on Spotify, I did some great research here that you you know you do get over. 1500 plays a month which must be quite you know all the work is out there it's archived you must be chuffed who does i said biff bang pow gets 1500 (laughs) monthly listeners as well written any of the songs david (laughs) i don't think yes i think you can probably get one piece song but then um But then, you know, Love's Going Out of Fashion has had 26,000 listens. So the music is still being heard and played. And, and, you know, Cherry Red keeps bringing out these compilations and often, you know, people are, you know, being included on them and they're selling quite a lot. So it's great that the work has been archived. It is actually, yeah. I mean, I'm still surprised. Having you, you having just said that, I'm surprised about the number of people who still listen to it. But as I say, I listen to Biff Bang Power once every couple of years and I put it on and I think yeah that was good I like that and it's good songs because it comes down to McGee's songwriting and he wasn't a good songwriter and I think he if you speak to him he likes to underplay that and occasionally you'll get stuff on Facebook about saying about McGee being a good songwriter and people do appreciate that actually because he did write good songs so that was a good thing to be part of to be honest yeah yes and what would you you know, Simon, what would you say to a, an 18-year-old self starting out and thinking, I'm going to run a record label? What would be your bit of wisdom that you picked up over those years? Oh, God. Um, oh, I don't know. Just You've got to be really organised. Oh, no, actually, that's not, that's not the most interesting thing. Um, the most interesting thing is um, don't ever book or put a band on your roster that pretends that, uh, being in a band is a democracy. Oh, that's a pointed comment. Was that, was, that, was, that, was that aimed at anybody in particular? It certainly was. Can yeah. we mention that person? <laughs> no, I'm not going to. But oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's interesting because I did mention, I did interview um, dear old Joseph Porter from Blythe Power. And I think one of the things that really he realised that he tried to run the band uh, probably in a quite a demographic demographic democratic way and it didn't go well and eventually I think over decades and having bad experiences and being presented with the same problem endlessly decided it was going to you know Blythe Powell was his band and from now on he's going to you know make the decisions and not do all that stuff about putting people kind of as as kind of co-writers of material which they didn't so I think a lot of bands and you know they struggle with being idealistic about being like let's all talk about stuff and vote on stuff yeah, no, exactly. Exactly, because I was talking, name drop, uh, to to, uh, to Andrew Innes just the other day, and I was talking about the, sort of the band that I'm in now and writing my own stuff. And, and Andrew literally said, no, it's not a democracy, it's him and Bobby. Okay, so <laughs> they make the decisions and that's it. So there you go. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And did you, and, do, and Simon, did you sort of keep in touch with any of the bands that you were, were ever on the label? Not, not really. As I say, I mean, I don't, I didn't make any lasting friendships with them, and I think that 
I mean, I in a, in a different sort of way to Alan, I was quite driven and I'm quite a character, I guess, in some ways. And I think I was very... He's a professor. <laughs> Whatever that means. But anyway, <laughs> it's, um, I, I certainly... Yeah, I didn't make those good friendships with any of the bands, and uh, and I'm not on Facebook, so um, so no, I'm not in touch with anybody. Yes, and it's a shame that the la- the Pink Label hasn't brought out any compilations of of the the, the uh, material. I mean, we, we did we put our own compilation out, uh, Beauty, which is uh, still available to sell. Is it? <laughs> well, on on Discogs, yeah, there is. It's, I'm I'm selling it. I've got a job lot of them, so you can buy it on Discogs. <laughs> On vinyl, but um, yeah, there isn't a um, there's no other record label out there that put together a um, a pink label record. No, uh, but I mean, there's plenty of stuff available there, David. So I think you can get yes. hold. Yes, and well, and out of the, the the releases you had, just roughly, what were the kind of the the say the best sales figures for one you know for either the single or album I just was kind of curious which one that yeah, was. That, that would almost certainly have been uh, the June Bride's album and and they were yeah they were very unhappy I think that um, in their perception um, that album then went to pay for some of the other records later on but um, you know I mean I I. Uh, my memory of it was that we had an accountant and um, that everybody got their just dues. You know, it, it was, um, I certainly didn't understand that side of it and I just followed whatever the accountant said. So, but the June Bride sold the most. I mean, I don't really remember the figures, but, um, you know, that that was the biggest selling record we ever had. Yeah. Go on, what? Sorry, was it much more than McCarthy? Same. Yeah, a lot more. I mean, I think it was um, June Bride, probably that, then that Petrol Emotion, and then the Wire Play Pop single, uh, uh, sort of mini album thing that we did, which um, in retrospect, actually, we should have um, seen that. We had, Paul and I had lots of ideas, actually, to license lots of other music from the 60s, 70s, 80, uh, 60s and 70s. Um, and put out mini albums and the like, and we really, really should have done that, uh, but we didn't. We didn't get around to it. We were too wrapped up with um, now, with the sort of scene at the time. And uh, but to, if we wanted to make some money, we should have produced some, um, some more of that sort of wire play pop stuff. Yes, absolutely. And Ken, what would you say to a, a young eighteen-year-old self? Um, what would I say to my young 18-year-old self? Um, possibly, um, I, it's difficult. I wouldn't say take it more seriously, but sort of um, you can do something with this. That's what I'd say probably. Or probably take some drum lessons. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, I would, I would say to learn to play in time. <laughs> Right, yes. And anyway, look, and you've got... Yeah, yeah. Learn to play in time, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, I think the drum is probably the hardest one. So look, just briefly then, what's your latest musical adventure? Mine is a band that I've uh, had for the last about a year or so called uh, Lord Fairbank. That's Lord Fairbank with a Y. And we are a sort of uh, psychedelic folk, psych folk uh, band from Stroud, where I live now. And uh, we've got one single on Bandcamp. And uh, I've taken some nice musical advice from Andrew Innes. 
And we've got a single coming out in the summer called London Bus. And it's very good. And I'll send you a copy of it when we get one. Oh, brilliant. Well, this is very exciting. Well, look, guys, this has been amazing. And Simon, thank you ever so much. Because, um, yes, it's it's great to sort of meet a person from the pink label, which is, you know, like I said, there's, there's you know, there's a few, aren't there, uh, indie labels from, from the 80s, which isn't the obvious one, Rough Trade, but, you know, like 53rd and 3rd and Pink and In Tape as well. So um, it's great to, to sort of meet the person behind it. Well, thank you. That's been magic, yes. And I do remember, I think it was, uh, yes, every conversation, wasn't it, which was the classic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, yeah. The classic one. Anyway, look, thank you guys, and um, and I'll and I'll send you the link when it comes out. Is that okay? That's fantastic. Thanks for your time, David. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Simon. Thank you, Ken. Take care. And bye. you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. And that, dear listener, is sadly the end of the interview. Um, thank you ever so much for listening, if you still are which is amazing. Um, and a big thank you to Ken Popple and also Simon Down from, or who was part of the Pink Label. Um, this has been David Eastall. I might have just said that. I don't know. I'm getting old. Um, if you want to contact me, you can just get on Facebook, um, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. And also all these interviews and uh, playlists shows have been archived. Just go to Spotify iTunes or Podbean, who we love, uh, just do at C86 show. Anyway, thank you. Stay safe. Speak soon.